Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast. We're your hosts, Sarah and Misasha. And today we're here to talk to you about another current issue, which is the humanitarian crisis at our borders. Hi. Hi. I'm good. I'm feeling more hopeful. Well, this is going to be a depressing conversation, but I feel more hopeful about it than... (laughs) Well, yes. And, you know, I don't think I even shared this with you when we were prepping for this episode, but one of our listeners, my friend Missy in New York, hi, Missy, she's like, you guys have this like super upbeat, jazzy theme. And then you're like, and we're going to talk about, insert super depressing thing here. And she's like... Okay, but I need to listen to this. Well, thanks for listening, Missy. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Your weekly dose of downers. (laughs) That's actually, that's going to be our working um, subtitle. I think from now on, your weekly dose of downer with Sarah and Misasha. Okay. But yes, that is partially true, I think. But the reason why it is that way is because these are topics that we often sort of gloss over because they are not fun, but they are ones that are super important. And I think today's is good in that there are ways to get involved. And if you were feeling, as you and I were discussing, Sarah, sort of down after last week's episode and feeling more hopeless about things related to gerrymandering, for example, or citizenship question, this is a, this episode is also about a very current event, but one where we feel like we are able to make some change or make some impact through starting to talk about this and having conversations about it. And so I would say be prepared to open your hearts a little bit more, because I think when things are far away and we're so numbed by headlines or you know visuals that are so horrible on movies or whatever, you forget that we're really talking about real people here. And And God forbid we're in a situation ourselves that we need to leave this country and go somewhere else. We need to think about how we would want to be treated as human beings. Super key. I think that is the key concept of today's episode, which is fundamentally we are all humans. So remembering that today we are here to talk about camps and not summer camps, which our kids are currently enjoying, or at least mine are currently, <laughs> along with their freedoms as American citizens. So we're not talking about those types of camps. We are talking about the horrors that are going on at our borders, where we are decidedly not asking for huddled masses yearning to breathe free anymore. This is an issue that we have to talk about. It involves kids dying, families being separated, and our government pushing for all of that under the not-so-hidden agenda of white supremacy. So let's get to it. And I want to preface this by saying that this, when we were writing this, I read this amazing article in The Atlantic called A Crime by Any Other Name, and it's by Adam Serwer. I'm sorry if I totally butchered that name, too. Yeah. Adam, if you're listening... Thank you. You are. Uh, But that article was so powerful that we excerpted a large part of it as preparation for today's discussion. So and why that article was so powerful is because it talked about the history of what we consider to be concentration camps in the United States. Because when you hear, as you said before, like when you hear concentration camps, or you said this to me earlier, when you hear concentration camps, I think most of us immediately go to Nazi Germany. Right. But when you hear this description, what do you think of? Quote, detainees described overcrowding so severe that it was difficult to move in any direction without jostling and being jostled. The water provided them was foul of a dark color and an ordinary glass would collect a thick sediment. The authorities never removed any filth. 
A detainee wrote that the only shelter from the sun and rain and night dews was what we could make by stretching over us, our coats or scraps of blanket. As for the food, our ration was in quality a starving one, it being either too foul to be touched or too raw to be digested. Sounds awful. Yeah. So to me, when I first heard or read that, it was really about prisoner of war camps, right? That's what I thought about. You know, like you're in a war and yeah, just terrible conditions or refugee camps. I think, you know, we have heard about so many terrible stories of refugee camps or, you know, of what's going on right now at our southern border. But while those all may be accurate, this description was actually of a Confederate prisoner of war camp at Andersonville, Georgia, where, as the historian James McPherson wrote, 13,000 of the 45,000 men imprisoned died of disease, exposure, or malnutrition. The images of the captive, emaciated Union troops are shocking, which is reminiscent to, if you're looking at these photos from the 21st century, this looks like the survivors of the Holocaust at that level when you saw survivor photos from concentration camps. These images so traumatized the northern public, so remember this is a Confederate POW camp, that after the war, the warden of the prison, whose name was Henry Wurz, became one of the only people tried for war crimes. He was Swiss-born, actually, and he was an easy scapegoat for northern anger because that spared most of the former Confederacy's military and political leadership from that and instead just sort of focused on him. And as a side note, I had never heard of like these Confederate POW camps before researching this episode. And I am the granddaughter of a Civil War historian. So no clue. I had not heard of them either. And my brother was a Civil War buff, grew up reading tons of books, and I never heard him mention any of this. I had no idea that prisoner of war camps existed during the Civil War. And it led me to wonder, you know, when did this idea start? Is it a human condition to trap people? You're fighting them and I'm just going to hold you and control you way back when wars didn't even involve guns. I mean, I just I couldn't wrap my head around the fact that, A, I didn't know, but then B, like, when did it come out? When I looked it up at Wikipedia, which we also have the asterisk, I know it's a biased news source, but I looked it up and it said the practice of paroling enemy combatants had begun thousands of years earlier, at least as early as the time of Carthage, as in like... BC. So thousands of years ago, but they became normal practice in Europe from 1648 onwards. The consequent increase in the number of prisoners was to lead eventually to the development of prisoner of war camps. Interesting. So that's, yeah, hundreds of years, if not thousands of years. Right. And it begs the question, when you have a number of people that you've captured and it becomes too many people, what do you do? Well, then it becomes that format. It sounds like is what happened. So back to words. Yeah. So he was arrested in 1865, shortly after the close of the Civil War. During his prisoner of uh, sorry, his uh, his war crimes trial, the union accused him of intending to, quote, impair and injure the health and to destroy the lives of the prisoners by subjecting them to torture and great suffering by confining in unhealthy and unwholesome quarters. He was charged with conspiracy to murder union prisoners also by offering them spoiled food, fouled water and inadequate living conditions and medical care. So that's interesting. He was charged with conspiracy to commit murder because he was basically offering him them subhuman living conditions. And, and I have a question. How is, I mean, if you're thinking about a time of war, though, and would you be tried for murder if you killed a soldier on the battlefield? No, because those were soldiers and you were destroying their lives. 
So would it have been more humane for him to go through all of these prisoners and just kill them once they've been captured? Or in that day and age, was there still an honor code of soldiers fighting with gentlemanly behavior? Because I remember stories of the truce during World War II, even where they sort of on Christmas Day, they just sort of in the bunkers were like, let's just enjoy this day. There was still that sense of honor among men fighting in war. So I just am still, I'm wondering, is that, how could you be charged with conspiracy to murder prisoners by giving them crappy living conditions if you would otherwise have killed them on the battlefield beforehand? Yeah, I mean, I guess the point is that they didn't get killed. So now all of those, like sort of that pause that happens when murder's totally okay, when you're fighting against someone, that all comes back into play the minute that the war is over or the minute that you're not actually, you know, fighting someone, but instead you're holding them. I don't know. Maybe that's where the line is. But that makes sense to me because they're now powerless individuals. They're not threatening to kill you with a gun or whatever machete to your face. They're now helpless. And so therefore you are expected to treat other humans as humans. Yeah. Fundamentally, right? Or basically. So back to the conspiracy to murder thing, Wurtz clearly didn't see it that way. He was basically saying, look, I was just following orders. Because he was the warden. He was the camp warden, basically. He was the warden. Yeah. So he was, I mean, he was high up in the Confederate army, but that was his role. I wonder who, I'm like, following orders from whom? If you're the warden, then like the head of the Confederacy? I don't know. Probably, or like some form of government that was in place, you know, or some sort of leadership circle, I mean, for lack of a better word. But yeah, you're totally right. So he argued the conditions at the prison camp at Andersonville were not deliberate, but instead the result of the Confederacy's lack of resources. He also wrote in response to these charges, I think I may also claim as a self-evident proposition that if I, a subaltern officer, merely obeyed the legal orders of my superiors in the discharge of my official duties, I cannot be held responsible for the motives which dictated such orders. Hello, Nazi Germany, anybody? I mean, it really makes me think about the conversations we've had about why we need to speak up or like defaulting to certain behaviors or blindly listening to the orders of our superiors. And I know that that in a in the military is a very valued thing. The higher ups say something and you execute. You do not waste time questioning or thinking or doing any of that. And in that sense, they were in war and that militaristic thinking makes sense. But when you remove yourself from that, if any of us You know, it's why we started the podcast to start using your voice, to start thinking, to speak up, because if everyone just follows orders and does what they're told to without considering, like running that human check through your system, aren't we just part of the problem and making it worse? Yeah, that's a great question. And you're right. Why we started this podcast is exactly that. Going back to this POW camp, you know, he's saying, Wurtz is saying that they didn't have resources, right? So that's why these subhuman living conditions exist. So why was it so bad? Like, why didn't they just send the prisoners of war back? And so it really comes down to like, what is the story and what's the actual truth, right? Because it wasn't actually the Confederacy's lack of resources, as it turns out. Unlike what Wurtz claimed that was keeping this prisoner of war camp going, basically. In fact, the Confederates probably and through documents like actually wanted to send the Union troops back. But here's the kicker. 
the Union, so that's the North, would not commit to troop exchanges with the South unless black soldiers were included. And they felt this way, the Union, because not placing such conditions on exchanges would have really undermined morale in black units and deeply harmed the Union's ability to recruit black troops. Because imagine if you're like, yeah, let's do this exchange. And the Confederacy says, "Okay, all the white dudes were cool. Black dudes, you got to stay here. So everyone sees that and is like, no. That's not going to work. So also the North felt that abandoning black troops fighting to preserve the Republic would be, in the words of the Secretary of War at the time, Edwin Stanton, a shameful dishonor. Well, I like that the Union was aware of it and put their foot down, so to speak, and said, no, this is how it's going to be, because the key reason behind the Civil War, obviously, was the economics around slavery and the abolition of it. So that is... Cool that they had the foresight, sucks that the South did not agree, and that therefore a ton of prisoners were kept in horrible, horrible conditions. Yeah, because fundamentally, the Confederacy felt that black soldiers that they were they had in their POW camps were their stolen property, because remember, they didn't view. So, and the head of the Confederacy, Confederate Bureau of War, basically, so maybe this is the answer as to who's giving the orders about the camp, said that the enlistment of our slaves is a barbarity, a use of savages, and these are quotes, that no people could tolerate. So it was more important to the Confederacy to treat black men as property than to obtain the return of their own troops. So they were going to stand by their principles rather than get their own people back. So although they didn't deliberately murder Union prisoners at Andersonville, so not direct murder, this unshakable commitment to basically the key concepts of white supremacy made these conditions inevitable because they weren't going to do the exchange of prisoners, but they didn't have the money to make the camps better, right? So... That's interesting. And so they were willing to basically sacrifice not just black soldiers, but white soldiers and their fellow man because they were fighting on the other side of the war. And it was all in the name of idealism. Yeah, totally. So this were really these POW camps were the first example of concentration camps or what we have come to see as concentration camps on U.S. soil. So this predated the horrors that we saw in Europe in World War II, as well as the internment camps that were sanctioned by our very own government against Japanese Americans during that same war. And the reason why scholars have seen Andersonville as sort of this harbinger of civilian concentration camps is because of sort of the commonalities of what are concentration camps. They are places of forced relocations of civilians into detention on the basis of group identity. Right. It's not like any one of those guys committed murder or any one of those. It's not like a prison where I did something wrong and I must therefore go to prison. It's because I'm Japanese American or it's because I belong to the union or that is basically what you're saying. Correct. It's often a form of collective punishment, but not often publicly acknowledged by governments as such. So in other words, as you stated, detainees are typically held because of something that unites them, such as race or culture or religious background or political identity, but not because of any specific offense that we can prosecute them for. <laughs> Does that sound familiar yet with what's going on <laughs> down south? Yeah. So from Andersonville to our southern border, Americans have again just looked at what is happening on the southern border. And if you have not looked at it yet, 
we urge you, look, because observers who have visited immigration detention facilities in the Southwest reported that children, and this is the heartbreaking part about it, because even if you can sort of be steeled against adult suffering, child suffering is so tough. Children are being held in cruelly austere conditions. The observers told the press that the children at a facility in Clint, Texas, were sleeping on concrete floors and being denied soap and toothpaste. They described children as young as seven and eight, many of them wearing clothes caked with snot and tears, caring for infants they've just met. A visiting doctor called the detention centers torture facilities. At least seven children have died in U.S. custody in the past year compared with none in the 10 years prior. About 2,000 children are now being held by the U.S. government on any given day. As if these conditions were insufficiently punitive, the administration has canceled any recreational activities, which is an act like the conditions that basically violates the law. And I need to jump in here because you think about kids in our schooling system and how they people are up in arms because their recesses were canceled to just, you know, they only get one recess at lunchtime versus two or three, which a lot of the kids for, you know, good development need to have. If they're all recreational activities are canceled, I mean, these are children And for any cold-hearted human being who's listening to this right now saying, well, the parents shouldn't have brought them in in the first place, may you never have to try to save your family from horrible living. Because to have them ripped away from you is not what they intended. That they did it with the best of, I would assume any of us would do things to fight for our family. And they did not say that oh yeah, that's okay for them to be in this sort of living situation. Not to mention that if any of these children who have to face this kind of horrible living condition and now will be marked with trauma for the rest of their lives, if they get integrated into our country because they in fact are granted asylum because they are being targeted in their home countries, these are the kids that are going to grow up with your kids. These are the kids who will be in our country, in our kids' schools. They will be adults in our country scarred because of what our government has done to them from the moment they set foot on our soil. I think that is such a good point. And all the psychologists have repeatedly, who have been there, who have talked to kids, Time Magazine released an article, which I think we're going to link to in our emails that show kids who are 10 and 11 years old when asked to draw pictures of what they see draw humans in cages. And, you know, if this is what you are seeing day after day, there is no way that you are not going to be scarred by that. And think about how young kids, um, those who are unable to express themselves, are having formative moments, being separated from their families, being left in inhumane conditions, often being forced to care for kids that they don't even know. And as a parent or as someone who knows children at all, this should be unthinkable. Yeah, I think regardless of the fact that I don't have a solution to the immigration challenges at the moment, this should be unacceptable because this is not okay to treat human beings this way. And in this case, we're not at war. Those other prisoner of war camps were prisoner of war. Like these are now... and These are people coming up. We're not at war with all these other countries at the moment. These are, as you said before, that's why we call them these concentration of collective punishment just from being people who are escaping up to our southern border. And I think one important thing to think about is that when you're thinking about and talking about the situation, 
we need to focus on what is happening as opposed to how it's being described. Because a lot of the ways that it has been twisted in the media is looking at when people have used the word concentration camps, which we feel fits the situation based on the definition we discussed, people are immediately jumping down those who refer to them as concentration camps throats as saying, you know, this is not a parallel to the Holocaust. But you're saying that those are semantics, right? Like, stop getting caught up in that. Exactly. We can't defend torture of children by worrying about semantics because, yes, this is not a case of genocide in the same way that the Holocaust was. I don't think anyone is arguing about that. But the amount of time and the amount of time that our elected officials have spent arguing about how to characterize this or who's in the wrong, this is all energy that should be directed into solving this, to fixing it, to making it better for the children who are there. And I think it's worth noting, this is not an only this administration issue. This has been happening for a long time. There has been mistreats migrants in these facilities, and it's been happening since before the Trump administration, for sure. And in fact, the policy council at the ACLU said, quote, there were definitely parts of the Obama program that did similar and in fact, some of the same things. But this all-encompassing skepticism of asylum seekers fleeing violence, justifying this cruel treatment, justifying changing in the law, and justifying overcrowding to the point of unsafe and deadly conditions is currently of a scale and a type that we have not seen before. So it's gotten worse is basically what we're saying. Right. Just exactly. So it has it is not a new phenomenon. And I think, you know, throughout history, this is not a new phenomenon and it has not existed just under this president. But the escalation of it and the treatment of people has grown to such a terrifying degree that this is now an actual humanitarian crisis, in our opinion. You know, one pediatrician who visited a Border Patrol facility in Texas observed extreme cold temperatures, lights on 24 hours a day, no adequate access to medical care, basic sanitation, water, or adequate food. Photographs show migrants huddled together, languishing in filth behind chain link fences, some with little more than mylar blankets for shelter, which is unthinkable, you know, and what is difficult also is that the administration has denied reports of shocking conditions and, you know, largely refuted the eyewitness accounts that are coming out of these centers. But in contrary to these denials, the government is fully aware of these conditions based on the contents of their DHS reports. And one internal DHS report, which is the Department of Homeland Security, describes cells so overcrowded that detainees could not even lie down to sleep, with temperatures reaching over 80 degrees. With inadequate showers, the migrants were wearing soiled clothes for days or weeks, and agents struggled to quarantine outbreaks of flu, chickenpox, and scabies. I think that what is the change from this administration also is the use of family separation in this instance. So not only is this a humanitarian crisis on living conditions, but it is a humanitarian crisis on how we are handling families like we've discussed. And the irony of it being a party that is valuing family and valuing the quality of, you know, valuing life. And yet it seems there's a big asterisk next to who that applies to in this case. Yeah. And I think that when people are, you know, look at these desperate attempts of migrants, you know, to come across a border and wondering, like, 
is this really worth it? The Trump administration has removed the other options for people who would like to come into the country in a different way, largely. It has altered immigration policy and the asylum process so as to force the authorities to hold migrants, whether they have properly sought asylum at a port of entry or crossed illegally. So regardless of how, you know, you come up to the border through the checkpoints or you, you know, try and crawl under a fence and has made it more difficult for children to be released to sponsors in the United States by threatening to arrest and deport family members who lack legal status. I didn't realize that the rules had changed. I did not realize that. Which is kind of amazing. So by deliberately doing this and making these changes, the administration has effectively pushed people who are desperate for, you know, asylum, for security, for their families to risk death by crossing the border illegally rather than presenting themselves at ports of entry and has sought to prosecute those who would help migrants survive the journey by leaving them food and water along the way, effectively making the federal misdemeanor of illegal entry a capital crime. In private, there's been such extreme reactions to this from Border Patrol officials. You know, some consider migrant deaths a laughing matter. Others are succumbing to depression, anxiety, or substance abuse. It's not easy for Border Patrol agents at all, either. You know, some, and as in any profession, some are good eggs, some are bad eggs, so to speak. But I think anybody with a heart is probably devastated having to see and witness and enforce some of the policies that the administration, again, the, you got to follow from what's top down, it sounds like. And the stress that the Border Patrol agents on the ground must feel having to do that might lead to totally callous behavior like laughing and taking nasty videos and all that sort of stuff. But it also, it sounds like some are in a really tough spot and having to deal with bolstering their own psychology and psychological health. Yeah. I mean, that no one is getting out of this unscathed and some much worse than others. And I think what really gave me pause about reading this Atlantic article was the premise that the writer put forth, which is basically like, if these are really concentration camps happening in the United States, this is shows that this is a failing of American society on a whole host of levels, because what the Republican Party and this administration are doing is sort of historically terrible, right? But the Democrats have also not been able to take on the mantle of fixing this, right? So both parties have failed. And the only way out of this that the administration has proposed is to legalize all of the terrible things that are happening. So we have neither party wanting to do anything about it in a legal way, except something terrible and no proposed solution. And I think they're in a really tough spot. For By all accounts, there are huge numbers, more than historically average, right? But just a large number of migrants coming from our southern borders. And by the time you put together a study group to study what other countries have done successfully and, and then implement and go through all the legal process, there's going to be a ton more people at the borders who are going to be living in these situations. So this, as you say, is like a crisis at the moment, because even if they were to build bigger buildings and proper air conditioned, whatever they need, it would take a while. And I don't know, that's the hardest thing is I don't know what the answer is, but something has to change. This is not okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that it largely has been sort of an inertia, you know, by a lot of people as to what can we do? And if we can't do anything, 
we're going to do nothing. But I think what we've seen is that the family separation, that policy that started, which has not been fixed and has no real plans to be fixed, has exacerbated this issue to one that we can't control, right? So we have to fix certain things about it on a basic humanitarian level, even if we don't know the overarching policy answer, right? And I think that becomes individual choice. What at this point, unless you're involved in politics or can start a think tank and study policy, immigration policy from the most successful places, because, you know, even if I look at and I'm only going to do this really briefly here, but like Canada has a every country has a unique set of circumstances. And as you pointed out before me, Sasha, we're based in a slave culture or a slave foundation for our country. So it is different than Canada. But other places have things like categories of immigrants, like family, economic, refugee and humanitarian. And it's not tied to whether an employee sponsors you, but whether you have the skills or the money already to provide an advantage to the country that you're trying to get into. And I think there's just so many different ways. If you think about Europe, a lot of those countries have borders all over them. They're landlocked countries with different countries bordering them. They must have different solutions to the influx and outflow of people that can walk in technically. And I don't see fences. My God, gates are opening and shutting. I meant fences <laughs> around all of them in these other countries. Like, I think that'd be great to study it. I'm sure there are people out there already doing it. But I think in the meanwhile, to stem a crisis like this, this count is something that each of us has to consider in a moment of quiet contemplation and decide if and what we each want to do. Someone posted on some social media feed recently that they saw a huge collection of people dressed in matching outfits with matching bags. And she thought, oh, maybe they're going to this or maybe they're going to the just was wondering who they were as they all sat in the airport. And it occurred to her. Then all of a sudden she's like, they're all brown people. And then she said in her mind, she realized they were all looking a little bit frightened and stressed out. And she realized that what it was, was a sponsored group of people who must have come up and were given clothing and, were, and they were being distributed around the country to go to different places while they were waiting for, I don't know if it's trial or what the right thing is. And I know some people go down and offer law services. I know other people might offer to open their home and take in some of these children who are in these detention centers. I don't know what that all looks like, but there are ways beyond giving money as well. Yeah, I think that you're right, that this is an individual issue as to how to respond. I think the key thing is responding in a way that makes sense to you, because I think what is different about this immigration crisis in the United States and how immigration has looked in other countries is especially when we're dealing with issues that are very rooted in race, is that these immigrants who are coming across the borders do not look like white Americans because they are not white Americans. And that seems to separate at times what we should be doing for each other as humans versus what we should be doing for each other as citizens or as, you know, people overall. So I, I think that the first thing is to remember, we are all humans. And those are humans who are being hurt and injured through terrible conditions and children who are suffering perhaps the worst. I think that it does not have to be monetary. You're exactly right. For lawyers, there are a lot of resources, the Dilly Project, We the Action. If anyone has any specific questions, they can always email us at hello at dearwhitewomen.com. And we've got some options. They're contacting, even if you have the time to shoot an email or make a phone call, even once to your representative to ask if they're going to go see the camps that 
can be a big thing, to talk to people about it, to read articles, just like we've been talking about in other current events, to just to be educated so that when you have the chance to make a difference or, you know, a lot of times there's an email that you open that you can reach out to someone in two clicks and that's it. So I know it gets overwhelming and I know sometimes it's way easier to just look away. But this thing, this crisis, we need to look straight at it and figure out what each of us can do, however big, however small. Yeah. It's along the lines of you may not be able to solve the world, but to one person, you may be the world. Yes. And I think that's true. You don't know the impact that you're making, even for one person, right? Through one simple action, whatever that is. So I think our basic ask is to just to stay aware and to care about humans. That sounds about right. Take a moment when this is done, maybe, and just think and feel. Yeah. And we've got, we'll be posting along with our weekly email, which if you don't have, shoot us an email at that same hello at dearwhitewomen.com address to get added to. Our email will have some links about some articles that you can look at, some resources, and yeah, shoot us an email too if you've got something else that you'd like to make us aware of. If you love what you're hearing, please subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating and review while you're at it. Also, if you're looking for some great email, who isn't, sign up on our website, dearwhitewomen.com and get our weekly email every Wednesday that gives you special bonus insider tips. You can also find us on social media. Sarah, can you tell us where to find? Absolutely. On Facebook and Instagram at Dear White Women Podcast and on Twitter at DWW Podcast. Find us there.